Once upon a time, people were trying to figure out how they got here and what they were supposed to do here and where they go from here. They were restless for something and longing for something and searching for something. Most of the time, we just live life as it comes. It comes in days and months and seasons. It comes in paychecks and medical records and reckonings. It comes in conversations and disagreements and compromises. It comes in promises kept and promises broken. It comes with wanderings from home and finding home again. Life as we live it easily distracts us. Being restless is always a hint that there's more. Last week we began with Abraham and we looked at passages in Genesis and a passage in Hebrews and a passage in James and a passage in Romans that that brought us to a place of focus for where we were going with this series. I told you that God only needs one person. He always starts with one person who believes. It just takes one to start something. We talked about how longing for more and being restless is normal and that faith isn't enough. It's never been enough. Faith needs action to be complete. And so today, we begin in the Gospel of John. Fearless. Truth is always radical. The born identity. Never has our future been more unpredictable. Never have we depended so much on political forces that cannot be trusted to follow the rules of common sense and self-interest. Forces that look like sheer insanity if judged by the standards of other centuries. It is as though mankind had divided itself between those who believe in human omnipotence, who think that everything is possible if one knows how to organize the masses for it, and those for whom powerlessness has become the major experience of their lives. On the level of historical insight and political thought, there prevails an ill-defined general agreement that the essential structure of all civilizations is at the breaking point. Desperate hope and desperate fear often seem closer to the center of such events than balanced judgment and measured insight. And so the great political philosopher of the 20th century, Hannah Arendt, wrote in her very famous book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, these words in 1950. And as she wrote these words in the, in the introduction, in the preface to her book, these words were so true of that world of 1950. And yet, as we look at them, they are so true still of the world in which we live today. And I'll also say this, if you go back 2,000 years, they're also true of the world that John was writing about, the world that Jesus was about to come into. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the theme of Jesus' proclamation is the kingdom of God. What are you going to do with the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom at work in your life? Where are you at work in the kingdom. In John, his proclamation is himself and his mission. 
John was written after 70 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans. In John's story, God leads us to Jesus and Jesus leads us to God. This is a story of radical truth. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The darkness has not apprehended it. To use a, a football analogy, the darkness has not been able to tackle it or to bring it down. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't get it. And so on a beautiful October 8th, 2011, yesterday, I was able to do a wedding on a boat out in Broad Bay. It was, it was a day, just if you could have ordered a day for a wedding on a boat out on the water, this is the day you would have ordered. Beautiful blue sky, a few clouds dancing along, the birds flying over, overhead, just all the beauty of God's creation surrounding you. And there we are, on this boat, ready to do that wonderful moment of seeing God knit the heart of a man and a woman together. As I got on the boat, I quickly met a new friend. His name is Chandler. Chan Chandler was very excited. And I could see in just a few moments of being with Chandler that he was bright, that he was a leader, that if there was something going on, he wanted to be in the middle of it. Chandler's a 15-year-old Down syndrome young man with a heart as big as the sky and just wants to do everything he can to embrace life. And so I knew him for all of 30 seconds and we were best friends. I mean, we were hanging out together. We were gonna, we were gonna go places together. We were gonna travel the world together because we were best buddies and his arm was around me and it was kind of a good feeling, I have to, I have to admit it. He wanted to know what my book was about. And I said, well, this is, this is the wedding book. He said, can I see it? And he started to look at the book. And then he, he began to ask me, can I do the wedding? Because he's a leader. And he wants to be at the, the forefront of everything that's going on. I said, I said, Chandler, I better do the wedding. It's, it's, it's legal that way. I wouldn't want you to be arrested or taken away by the Virginia Beach police. So he was reading the book and going through the order of service. And after a while, he comes to me and he says, what's this right here? What's this? And I said, well, that's, that's a reading that I do in the wedding. He said, can I do that? And I said, well, go ahead and read it for me. And he read it, and it was great. And I, I loved to hear his voice reading that scripture. And I said, you're going to do that in the wedding. And I popped it out of my wedding book, and I gave it to him for the next 30 or 40 minutes. If you looked at Chandler, he was studying. He was pouring over those words because he was going to be part of something great. So that time came in the wedding, and I said, we now have a reading from Chandler. And he stood up, he read from Ecclesiastes chapter four, and he got every word. And at the end, he got a little bit of, a, of applause, which I never get in a wedding, but he got, 
he got a little bit of applause there. And, uh, and so then later, we're over at the, uh, at the reception and we're excited because we did the wedding together. I said, Chandler, you are the only person who has ever assisted me in doing a wedding. We fist bumped and we chest bumped and we high-fived and we hugged each other and we're gonna travel the world together and go on the road together and we're just you know, gonna, gonna have, have a life together. And I said, Chandler, do you think you can get me a roll for, for this food that I have here on my plate because I got too much food and not enough roll? And he goes, he looks at it and he goes, I'll take care of it. So he's gone, he's back in 10 seconds and I'm thinking, he doesn't have a roll, what's the story? He goes, I've taken care of it. So I'm just waiting and, and waiting. About a minute later, here comes a waiter all dressed up. He's got a tray, napkins on the tray, two rolls beautifully positioned on a plate as if they're gonna get married and have little biscuits, children. <laughs> and so he comes and says, anybody call for the rolls? Who ordered the rolls? I said, I did. And then I, they put him down. I looked at Chandler. He said, I took care of it. <laughs> you see, here's the interesting thing. Chandler was able to, to figure it all out. He was able to understand what was going on and what had to be done. He was able to survey the landscape, see how the system worked, and understand how to enter the system and get productivity out of the system. He apprehended knowledge. He embraced knowledge. He lived it out of his heart that's as big as the whole outdoors because he was paying attention. What John is saying is people weren't paying attention. The light shines in the darkness. The light showed up. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. But nobody was paying attention. No one was able to capture the moment. No one was able to understand what does this mean? What does this mean for me? And how do I enter this experience of this light? And so John asks his first question. Do you believe? Do you believe in what seems to be impossible? Do you believe that? He continues, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so John, as he writes, is very clear. He doesn't want any confusion about John the Baptist being the light, anybody else being the light. The light is coming in, and all we can do is stand back and try to understand what is happening. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so John asks his second question. What if God was one of us? There was a song about 12, 13 years ago that went that way. What if God was one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to find his way home? And that idea of God being one of us has has gone over and over again into stories and poems and sitting around campfires and questions that have come. What if God was one of us? And John is saying, you've got to answer that question. You know, there are only three options for God, really. And I talk to people about this a lot, and I've talked to you about it before, but let's just do it one more time. There's only three options for God. The first option is the option that the atheists 
propose. There is no God. There is no God. That's it, option number one. It certainly is an option. It's on the table. But when it's on the table and you take it, it leaves a lot of questions strewn across the table behind it. Then who are we and, and how did we get here? And, and, and who made this thing with the fingers that is just so incredible in our minds that work in, in such an incredible way also, such a detailed way, such a fascinating way, such a creative way, such an organized way? What is the universe? What is all this? All these questions are strewn across the table, but it's an option. It's option number one. There is no God. Option number two is there is a God. But God is not personal. God is only a force, a creative energy. And so it reminds me of when I went to the planetarium in New York and I saw the, the program about the creation of the universe and, and Whoopi Goldberg intoned very seriously in the beginning was the dark matter. And I, I thought, Whoopi, come on, the dark matter, you got to do better than that. In the beginning was the dark matter. It's impersonal. It was just, it was just swirling around. It was the dark matter. And so if God is just a force, an impersonal force, a creative energy, you still have lots of questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? And then you have the third option. God is personal. God's personal. And he wants to know you. He actually loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants there to be incredible intimacy between you and him and he has something he's calling you to do with your life he created you and he made you with a purpose he gave you gifts to use to to create the kingdom of god here on the earth as it is in heaven and so you look around and you see we're all so relationally driven Yesterday on the boat, all the family and friends were gathered on the bow of the boat, looking intently at the two that were promising their lives to each other. There was deep, personal, intimate relationship there because we're relational. Right now, a little baby is being held and rocked down in the nursery because we are relational beings. You're going to go out to lunch with some folks and you're gonna talk and you're gonna to eat together, you're gonna to laugh together because you are relational and you need that. And so maybe this relational, personal God who created us in his image imparted to us all this relational DNA because that's the best way to experience him. What if God was one of us, John asks? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, to believe in the name is used three times in the Gospel of John. To believe in is used 30 times in the Gospel of John. It's almost as if John is saying, believe, you've got to believe, you've got to understand this, you have to believe in this. Don't get to the end of my story without believing. Please believe, believe this is true. Believe what I'm telling you is real. It's, it's a radical truth, but it's so real. It's what you can believe in. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, literally bloodlines. When two people get married, there's a bloodline and there's another bloodline and they get married. And they create something that's a new bloodline. And that's the way people understood their lives and their descendants thousands of years ago. Bloodlines. Children born not of bloodlines, nor of human decision, literally the will of the flesh. 
the will of the flesh, a man and a woman come together, a husband and wife come together, and they decide, they make a, a decision. We want to have a child. That's the will of the flesh. Or a husband's will. 2,000 years ago, it was still a very male-dominated society, a male-dominated way of thinking. The women's movement hadn't come along yet. It was 2,000 years in the making, and then all of a sudden, boom, you took over. But back, but back 2,000 years ago, back 2,000 years ago, it was still this idea of, of a husband's will. A man wants a son. He wants a son to carry on his legacy. He wants a son to carry on his name. He wants a son to teach the things that he's learned about life and experience to teach a job to, to teach skills to, not by a husband's will, not by the will of the flesh, not by bloodlines, but born of God, born of God. John asked the question, what is the born identity? What is the born identity? And we're going to go into this uh, much deeper next week when we get to John 3. But suffice it to say, if everything that has preceded this but born of God is about DNA and it's about family and it's about the, the way we understand ourselves to be as we reproduce ourselves, then this born of God has the same context. It's in the same zone of, of thought. Somehow God wants to impart his very DNA to us. The way we think, the way we are, the way we feel, the way we know each other in a family. As, as you gather around a table at Thanksgiving or as you go to visit relatives, you know who they are, you know how they think, you know how they feel. You know that in your family there are certain characteristics that go generation to generation. Maybe it's blue eyes, maybe it's curly hair, maybe it's, it's, it's being able to do well on tests, maybe it's being able to fix things and, and, build, and build things, but there's, there's DNA. And so John is saying this is about not human DNA, this is about God's DNA. In a spiritual way, God wants you to think like he thinks and act like he acts. He wants you in his family, and, and you'll experience your life in a whole new way when you enter that experience of the born identity. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, it says, and camp. The word became flesh. Now, verse 1 was cryptic to you. In the beginning was the, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now John starts to paint with different colors, colors that are a little more vibrant, colors that begin to capture the, the bigger feeling of what he's trying to say. The word became flesh. In other words, the word took on a body and encamped with us. This wasn't his home, but he was going to be here for a while. You go camping and you set up a campsite and it's not your home, but you're there for a while and then you go home. So he was coming here for a while, but he wouldn't be here forever. And then he would go home. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him, John the Baptist. He, he cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. 
for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came is literally came into being. It's, it's, con, it's contrasted with, with the, the, the law from Moses. The law is written down. You can read the law. You can open a book. You can see the rules. You can see the rules in football. You can see the rules in baseball. You can see the, the traffic rules. You can, you can open a book and read the rules. But this is not about a book of rules. This is about grace and truth came. Coming into being is almost the idea of being birthed. It's the idea of, of life and breathing and experiencing and embracing and living grace and truth is alive through Jesus Christ. Again, it's very relational. It's, it's personhood driven. It's knowing God and letting God know you. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And as I read this, I think about how a child has a stuffed animal, and the stuffed animal looks like an animal, maybe feels like an animal, and they carry it around, but it doesn't do a whole lot of, of animal stuff. And then all of a sudden, the child sees a dog for the first time, and the, the dog jumps up and licks the child's face, and the child is, what is this? And the child thinks, this is something that is animated. This is something that has a, a soul and a passion for life that I've never experienced before. And the child doesn't think it in those words because the child doesn't know those words, but the child feels it somehow. I'm experiencing something that's different. And the paws go up on the child's chest and pushes back and they feel some, some power. And they go, this is different than this little animal that I carry around. Well, the animal that is stuffed is like the law. And that living being, that dog, is like this grace and truth that came alive and you suddenly are there and you feel it and you see it and it looks at you and you look back at it and you see that it is Jesus Christ, God, who came into the world and became one of us. And so John asks the question, why are grace and truth so important? Because desperate hope and desperate fear seem closer all the time. You see, faith, grace, and truth are so important because you need something that you can build your life on. You need something that will hold the entire weight of your life, not just guessing about life, not just hoping that you'll make the right decisions, go the right way, maybe end up in the right place. Why would you want to roll the dice with your life? And so many people do that all the time. Well, I feel secure. I think I'm secure. I think I have enough. I think it's going to make it through, and I think I'll get to the end. But what's at the end? Did you live on the foundation of grace and truth or not? That's why grace and truth are so important, because the possibility of missing what's most important is always right in front of you. It's been all over the news for the last few days, and you've seen it, and you've, you've heard about it, and you've seen videos of Steve Jobs, and, and you've, you've heard the story of his life, and, uh, and you've thought about the different ways that, that the impact of his life has changed the world and changed your life. Certainly, it's, it's changed my life. The iPhone utterly changed my life overnight. Overnight, I was untethered from a desk and a chair, and I could work anywhere, standing up at a, at a counter, walking down the street. It was just incredible how that all just happened just like that. But because one man 
thought about it. And so what's, what's been in the news a lot regarding Steve Jobs is his speech at Stanford University in 2005 when he spoke to the, to the graduating class. And you saw an excerpt of that earlier. What's really interesting about that speech is he tells three stories, but the stories are the stories that answer questions that we all have or attempt to answer questions that, that we all have. Stories about, about what am I supposed to do with my life and stories about, I think I'm supposed to go this way. Am I supposed to go this way or that way? And stories about success and stories about failure and what do you do after you fail and stories about sickness and stories about facing death and stories about trying to figure out what does that mean when you face your own death and what do you say at the end of your life and so we've been watching this and we've been looking at it. It's been shown over and over and over again as if it has some kind of biblical status when all the questions have all been here and all the stories have all been here for thousands of years. But why do people resonate with his life? Because they want to see a real person grapple with these things. They want to see a real person who's lived in their lifetime, who they know about. They want to see what will he say? Is there something that I can use to build my life on? So I will attempt to compare and contrast what John has written in chapter one with what Steve Jobs presented to the graduating class at Stanford University in 2005. John asked the question, do you believe in what seems to be impossible? Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it has made all the difference in my life. And so Steve Jobs says, look, you gotta trust something. I don't care what you trust. You might trust your gut. You might, if I trust my gut, I'll be at the 58 diner like every day. That's what happens when I trust my gut. I was there twice this week, true confessions. You have to trust something, trust your gut. Destiny, how do you trust destiny? Trust your life. I can't even figure out where I'm going. How am I supposed to trust that? Karma, karma, what? Whatever, whatever, how do you trust whatever? But he, he states what is categorically true. You have to trust in something. John said, to believe in what seems to be impossible. Will you trust in what seems to be impossible? But it's not. John asked the question, what if God was one of us? Job said, sometimes life hits you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. You've got to find what you love. The only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. As he says that, he, he presents the gospel according to his life experience. The only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And I believe that. I believe that too, that God has called us to do great things. 
It's not worth it to get up in the morning if you're not doing great things. Don't settle. I believe that. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And so Jobs gets part of that right. He's a very smart man, and he gets part of it right. You've got to look at what's on the inside. You've got to look at what you're passionate about, and you've got to do that. And don't ever not do that. Don't settle. But he misses the fact that God has shown up. What if God was one of us, and God, the God who gave us our gifts, and the God who lit our passions what if that God was calling us to do something great that was for something even beyond the experience of being alive here? What if it was for something that is called the kingdom of God and forever and always and eternity and heaven? What if God was one of us and it's so much more than just your passions for what you do now? Why are grace and truth so important? Jobs said, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost all everything, almost all of everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important, Remembering that you are going to die is the very best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Why are grace and truth so important? Because they come alive. And, and they tell us that, that death is, is just a symbol of something that you have to make a decision about. Do you want to live forever? Do you really want to see things that now you can barely imagine? Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Death is certainly out there. It's out there for all of us. It came along for Steve Jobs this week. But it's so much bigger than that. It's about being alive. It's about life being changed. You go from life to life. Your body falls. Your soul moves on. You, you have no, there is no end to your conscious being. You go from being alive one minute and saying goodbye to saying hello. What is the born identity? Job, Job said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. And he's right. And Jesus knew he was right because Jesus acted that out in the first century. He didn't show up going, okay, everybody's thinking right. Okay, we're all right there. We got it all organized. We got our religion right and our lives are straight. He showed up and said, We've got a lot of this stuff wrong, and I'm not going to let you live it out in a wrong way. We're, we're going to stop doing it this way. We're going to start doing it this way, the way I always intended it to be, the way you were designed for it to be. And people got mad because we would rather do what's wrong and, and feel like we're in power than do what's right and have to, to give our lives to a God who has asked us to sacrifice for him. Jesus said, let me show you how to sacrifice so that you know that sacrifice is the highest form of love. 
Zahab said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now the new is you, but someday not too long from now you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it is quite true. And so maybe somewhere deep down in Steve Jobs' heart and mind and soul, he remembered being in a Lutheran confirmation class when he was 12 or 13 years of age, for he grew up in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, a very conservative biblical denomination. And his teacher in that class was the Reverend Dr. Martin Taddy. And he was taught about Jesus, and he was taught about life, and he was taught about eternity, and he was taught about grace. And maybe the, the remnant of that was still clinging to his soul as he was getting ready to transition out of this life. I don't know, but I know he understood that death is very likely the single best invention of life. Although maybe he forgot that it's just a transition from life to life. His, his biography is about to be released this month and sales have shot through the roof. Um, somebody told me they, that sales went up like 18,000% or something like that, or maybe 180,000%. They're just poof, through the roof. It's going to be released, I think, October the 24th. So the man who's writing this biography, Walter Isaacson, has interviewed Jobs 50 times over the last two years to get to, to know him, to get to know the most intimate details of his life. But what was bothering him was, was this question, why would Steve Jobs let me interview him so I could know all the details of his life when he's been such a private person? When admittedly people have said over and over again, Steve Jobs is a really hard guy to know. You don't get to know the real Steve. So why would he let this man in his life to interview him for two years so that his story could be written down? So Isaacson goes to Jobs' home a couple of weeks ago. Jobs moved his bedroom from the second floor to the first floor because he couldn't get to the second floor anymore. He was too sick. And Isaacson sat by his bed and said, Steve, nobody really knows that much about you. Why have you allowed me to interview you so many times? Why are you allowing me to write this story of your life? And this is what Jobs said. I wanted my kids to know me. I wasn't always there for them. And I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. Let's go to those first few words. I wanted my kids to know me. Sounds kind of relational, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like the heart of a father who wants to give his life back to his kids. Somewhere, somehow, God planted that inside of this man's life a long time ago. And at the end of his life, it's what he was thinking about the most. You see, we have a choice. And that choice is to believe in radical truth. It's the only truth you can build your life on anyway. 
And so here's radical truth. Number one, the God who created the universe came into our world 2,000 years ago. He passionately wanted to make us aware of our spiritual DNA. He wants to get us born again. Life and death turn on what you believe. Once upon a planet, people were trying to figure out how they got here and what they were supposed to do here and where they go from here. They were restless for something and longing for something and searching for something. What you've been searching for your whole life is radical truth. It's the only thing you can build your life on. It's personal. It's real. It's time for you to know your born identity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's story and for what he was presenting to us and how he was, was living that story and embracing that story for those years of his life when he was with Jesus. Father, thank you for allowing us to feel his, his passion for your love and your grace and allow us to see as we move further into his story why you called him to teach us radical truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. I'll see you next week.